Now's the time to make sure your immune system is as strong as it can be and to build your natural immunity. It's time to empower your immune system. Empower supercharges your immunity because it's made from AHCC, one of the most powerful mushroom extracts to ever come out of Japan. It's been shown to enhance your immune protection by over 300%, and it has the robust research to prove it. Empower is my first go-to when it comes to immune support. I personally take it daily and prescribe it to my patients in need of immune support. And who doesn't these days? If you're looking for a way to supercharge your immune system protection and build your natural immunity, Empower is the solution for you. For more information to order, go to theharmonycompany.com. That's theharmonycompany.com. Or call 800-422-5518, 800-422-5518. Use coupon code HOFFMAN20 at checkout and get a 20% discount and free shipping. That's theharmonycompany.com for Empower. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Today's subject is uh, something that I think is very, very important, uh, something that we don't cover enough. We're going to be talking about pain, but we're going to be talking about uh, pain from a, a different perspective, not so much about uh, some new, remarkable, natural uh, anti-inflammatory supplement. We're not going to be talking about necessarily uh, some physical modality like uh, acupuncture or osteopathic uh, manipulation. We're going to be talking about the relationship between stress and chronic pain. With us today is Dr. David Clark. He's president of the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association. I know that's a, a mouthful, the PPDA, but don't worry. If you try to look them up, you can find them at endchronicpain.org. That's a lot easier. Uh, the PPDA is a nonprofit organization dedicated to ending the chronic pain epidemic, and that is a worthwhile goal because pain is big problem. We'll look at the scope of the pain problem in the United States and also all the adverse consequences that are spawned by it. Dr. Clark holds an MD from the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. He's a former Manhattanite, now located in Portland, Oregon, and he's board certified in internal medicine and gastroenterology. The, the mission of the uh, PPDA the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association is to advance the awareness, diagnosis, and treatment of stress-related and brain-generated medical conditions. Again, their website, endchronicpain.org. Dr. Clark, I'm very much looking forward to our discussion. Welcome to Intelligent Medicine. Thank you, Ron. It's great to be with you. I appreciate the opportunity to share some ideas with you. Indeed. Well, first of all, share with us uh, the scope of the problem, because it seems that uh, pain is ubiquitous and inevitable. Uh, how big a problem is it? And, you know, what is it costing us in terms of uh, the material costs, but also, you know, the, the social costs of chronic pain? Yeah, it's it's huge. I mean, I don't, almost don't know where to begin. I mean, it was 35% uh, of the patients that I saw had brain-generated pain or other symptoms. It's 40% of people who visit a primary care clinician have brain-generated pain or illness. Again, not caused by disease or injury, but actually generated by the brain with symptoms every bit as real and as severe as those from any other cause. And we're looking at uh, 
a majority of patients with chronic pain, pain lasting longer than three to six months. Uh, we're looking at uh, 20% of the adult population, so approximately 50 million people in the United States. Uh, the cost of it is uh, $650 billion was one estimate uh, from a paper about a decade ago. And of course, we've got uh, a lot of inflation piled on top of that figure uh, since then. Uh, it's absolutely massive. And to compound the difficulty, um, very few physicians have had formal training in how to diagnose or treat the condition when it's not due uh, to a disease or an injury. You know, we're all trained to look for biomedical causes, to do the diagnostic test, look for an organ disease, look for an injury. But when those are not present, then what do we do? Um, and I didn't find out about that until I was uh, in the eighth year of my training. And many physicians are still um, not able to diagnose the the uh, psychosocial stresses that are actually lurking behind all of this. So uh, it's uh, the probably the biggest blind spot in healthcare. Let's put it that way. Well, the tendency in medicine, as you know, is to look for a culprit lesion. And dollars to donuts, if you look at someone over the age of, say, 50, and you look at their spine, you're going to find some abnormalities. And if they're suffering from, say, low back pain or neck pain, uh, you can attribute those uh, those the pain syndrome to whatever anomalies they find, you know, some, you know, maybe uh, some uh, osteoarthritis or uh, some disc problems. Uh, and then sometimes the solution is to uh, put an injection into the, uh, the uh, intervertebral spaces uh, or to worse yet, sometimes do surgery uh, to yes. fix it, to fuse the vertebra. Uh, but, uh, so how do you know what, whether it's the culprit lesion that's causing the problem or whether there's a, uh, as you say, a brain based cause of the problem or, or is it potentially a mixture? Is there a spectrum from purely, uh, uh, psychosomatic pain to, uh, you know, pain that in, in a sense is organic? Yeah, a lot to unpack there. Certainly when it comes to the spine, that's a difficult area because um, we develop abnormalities in the spine that are minor just with the aging. Uh, in fact, the majority of the population, uh, the population with no symptoms, by the way, people with no pain, the majority of that group over the age of 40 uh, will have abnormalities on their MRI. And if pretty large fraction of people younger than 40 will have absolutely no symptoms from abnormalities uh, on the MRI of their spine. So it can be tricky to figure out, uh, all right, is is the abnormality that we're seeing in the spine responsible for symptoms in someone with pain or, or is it not? Uh, and probably one of the best ways is to look at actual nerve function. Is there muscle weakness because there's a pinched nerve or numbness uh, in the skin or bowel or bladder problems or loss of reflexes? If you've got that evidence of actual nerve damage, then yes, uh, the pain is very likely coming uh, from a pinched nerve. But a very large fraction of people who don't have those things, 88% uh, in one study, um, do not have uh, pain coming from the abnormalities in their MRI and that it's actual 
actually uh, brain-generated symptoms, uh, very much like uh, uh, the classic example of phantom limb pain, where someone who's had an amputation uh, is experiencing pain at the site of their missing limb. And obviously, the pain is not coming from there. It's coming from uh, the brain. Um, other clues that uh, your symptoms are brain-generated are if you've got um, more than one symptom that's lasted for longer than six months, especially if you've got three, four, five or more symptoms uh, in your body uh, or the symptoms move from place to place or they're not triggered consistently um, by the same action uh, or you have um, pain that comes on after you've been moving a particular body part but not while you're moving the body part. Uh, so a lot of clues there that are suggesting to us that um, the brain is, is generating. And to do a complete evaluation, uh, you know, beyond just the, the MRIs and the lab tests and the x-rays and the endoscopies and ultrasounds and on and on, you, we need to be able to do a stress evaluation on people, uh, be able to look for the psychosocial issues that are truly lurking behind this. Uh, and unless we've done that, um, we haven't done a complete evaluation. Well, let's look at the spectrum of uh, disorders that might be related to uh, PPD, psychophysiologic disorders. Uh, what does that comprise? I mean, we talked about back pain, neck pain. I think those are some obvious examples. Uh, but where might uh, PPD lurk uh, in other common pain syndromes? Yeah, it's um, literally from head to toe, um, migraines, uh, there are a lot of non-pain symptoms as well, um, ringing in the ears, um, visual disturbances, pseudo-seizures, um, pain in the uh, temporomandibular joint uh, of the jaw, facial pain from, you know, facial nerve, uh, difficulty swallowing, um, pain in the chest, unexplained chronic cough, uh, difficulty breathing, uh, the full range of gastrointestinal symptoms, uh, short of bleeding, obviously, uh, which is how I got into this field, um, nausea, vomiting, bloating, dyspepsia, indigestion, constipation, diarrhea, the whole, yeah, the whole irritable bowel functional dyspepsia, pelvic pain, uh, genital pain, joint pain, numbness and tingling in the extremities, uh, various kinds of rashes, uh, even hair loss in hmm. some cases. Um, the only common denominator is that people with this condition tend to have, but not always, but there is a tendency to have more than one symptom at a time in more than one location uh, with symptoms that can move from place to place in some cases. So I think the big pushback against this notion uh, by some people is that it's a denial that the pain is, quote, real, and that it somehow places the onus on the patient. It's, it's somehow it's, it stigmatizes them. It's like, it's your fault. Uh, you know, you, you've allowed uh, intrusive uh, thoughts uh, and uh, a poor mental attitude to uh, dominate your psyche. And, and this is, and the result is that you've rendered yourself more vulnerable to chronic pain. How do you, how do you address that, that critique? Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, part of our own uh, implicit instruction when we come through the uh, medical education and training system that uh, people with this condition are neurotic. They can't handle their stress. It's all in their head. Their symptoms are largely imaginary. We can't 
do anything for them uh, diagnostically. Uh, we can't do anything for them therapeutically. They're pretty much just going to have to live with it. Uh, and it turns out that, you know, and I can document this from my own experience as well as from randomized control trials that have been done recently, that not a single one of those myths is true. Um, my patients are actually mentally stronger than the average person. Um, it's just that they're coping with vastly more amounts of stress uh, than even they realize themselves. Uh, and the symptoms are absolutely real. I mean, I, I have had patients with this condition in the hospital uh, many times. Um, one of my patients was a 17-year-old who was I was asked to see on her uh, 70th day in the hospital. Uh, she was getting 250 milligrams of morphine uh, a day around wow. the clock by patient-controlled anesthesia pump. And for your listeners that don't know, morphine doses, 5 or 10 milligrams for yes. a kid this size would have been enough to alleviate the pain of a fractured leg. You are never going to convince that patient that her pain wasn't real. And, you know, every single one of my 7,000-plus patients, their symptoms were real. And what about, uh, like, a, a body-wide pain syndrome, uh, fibromyalgia? Uh, is that uh, amenable to this paradigm? Absolutely. I mean, it's one of the most common forms of brain-generated symptoms. And uh, by doing a stress evaluation and looking into the, uh, the sources of stress, which there may be more than one, um, we can um, almost always successfully intervene to alleviate those stresses and people improve. Fibromyalgia can take a while, but um, at the other extreme in terms of uh, how quickly people can get better from this when the correct diagnosis is made. Um, one of my patients was a 50-year-old woman I was asked to see in the hospital. She'd been admitted overnight for uh, an attack of extreme vomiting and dizziness. And when I went to see her, she said something to me I've never heard from any other patient, which was, thank you for coming, doctor, but don't waste your time. Uh, you'd be better off seeing your other patients. Hmm. And when I asked her why, she said, well, you know, I've been – uh, admitted, and I won't say the name of the place, but it's one that everybody would know is a major university on the West Coast. She'd been in hospitalized there 60 times over the previous 15 years wow. with no diagnosis, having exactly these same attacks. And she'd seen a dozen specialists, you know, ENT, neurology, GI, and ultimately a psychiatrist because, you know, the uh, other doctors were so frustrated. Uh, even the psychiatrist couldn't figure out, well, you know, he said, no, no mental health problems here. Um, but she had turned out she had a massive stress uh, in her life. And I was able to find that uh, her attacks of illness were all connected to that stress. And as soon as she saw that connection for the first time, I can still remember her looking up at the ceiling and saying, oh, my God. I cannot believe this. And in her case, she was cured on the spot. She went home from the hospital the next day. Uh, she called me a year later to say she'd gone the entire year uh, without a single episode. Does, does this approach uh, owe a debt to Dr. John Sarno, who really kind of pioneered uh, this notion? Uh, he was here in New York City at uh, Rusk Rehabilitation uh, Hospital, uh, where uh, he pioneered the notion that uh, perhaps you know some patients could be amenable to a form of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. He used to conduct sessions one-on-one uh, -on -one with people. I've actually sent patients to him, uh, and he's cured their pain problems. Uh, this is in uh, the 80s and 90s. Uh, I actually uh, interviewed him on, on the radio program. Uh, 
And uh, he was uh, celebrated, but also a very controversial figure because some people thought, well, this is a form of voodoo. Yes, he um, had some uh, outstanding insights into what was going on. He was a physiatrist and he saw a lot of patients uh, with chronic back pain. And his great insight was that uh, this back pain in many cases could be connected uh, to psychosocial stresses of one sort or another. And he was able to shift his patient's attention uh, from their backs uh, to their brain where the symptoms were actually being generated and from the brain to looking at stresses in their life, both past and present, because uh, a large fraction of my patients, a majority, in fact, the, the stresses can be traced back to childhood, to adverse childhood experiences. And he found that by shifting people's attention into these areas, most of them could figure out uh, what was going on and take some steps to uh, reduce the level of stress and Lo and behold, their physical pain uh, would improve and oftentimes go away completely. Uh, he had some, uh, let's say, non-evidence-based ideas um, that were largely irrelevant to the huge success he was having uh, with his patients. Uh, but some of these ideas that he had uh, were rejected by his colleagues, and uh, he he didn't get the acceptance uh, that he deserved for um the areas of his practice where he was absolutely right. Um, there's another doctor that I regard also as a, a founding a patron of this whole line of thinking, and his name is Francis Peabody. Um, he was a professor at Harvard in the 1920s, and he gave a speech that was published in JAMA in 1927 hmm. um, that basically laid out all of these ideas, a 6,000-word speech. Uh, it has a lot of resemblance to speeches I give today uh, all across North America and Europe. Uh -huh. And you mentioned uh, uh, adverse childhood experiences. Uh, you can abbreviate them ACEs. Uh, how is it that they can set up uh, the brain to process pain aberrantly? Uh, what, what are some of the circumstances that lead to that? Well, the ACEs can cause uh, uh, very powerful effects on people's long-term health. In fact, if you have four or more ACEs, which about one person in six uh, does, uh, the impact on all kinds of different health outcomes uh, is just absolutely enormous. And uh, this is also the case uh, for people with chronic pain or uh, other brain-generated uh, symptoms. And it was true in the majority uh, of my patients. Now, we can't go back and change a person's childhood experience as much as we would like to, but we can intervene uh, in areas of long-term impact for people. And these fall into three categories. Number one is stress-inducing personality traits. Number two is triggers, which are uh, people, situations, or events that are in a person's life today uh, that are made particularly stressful because of their links to the ACEs from the past. And then the third, and in many cases the most important, uh, are repressed emotions, uh, anger, mm. fear, mm. shame, grief, guilt that are um, lingering from childhood that were repressed back in those uh, early days because you had to repress them in order to survive what you were going through. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're still in there, uh, even in midlife. And they uh, have been repressed 
so that they can't be put into words. So consequently, they express themselves uh, physically uh, via the body. Uh, my very first patient with this, uh, the one that um, changed the course of my career, uh, had been sexually abused as a mm -hmm. girl hundreds of times. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it caused a severe physical condition uh, in her mid-30s. And it was only when we made that connection and uh, a psychiatrist who became my mentor uh, successfully treated that patient um, that um, the long-term impact was uh, relieved with the consequence that her physical symptoms were relieved as well. Uh, I've noted, uh, you know, I treat a lot of patients who have multiple chemical sensitivities. They're allergic to the world. Uh, and what I've learned is that uh, in dealing with them, it's important to do a very, very thorough history and see if there's a history of either uh, sexual uh, or verbal uh, or physical abuse in childhood, because what it does is it almost uh, puts uh, uh, the brain in kind of, into some kind of an alarm state where it's as if uh, the body is become sort of a, a very delicate mousetrap where any little bit of an insult can set off a whole cascade of uh, reactions in the body. Is this a little bit akin to, to what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you are a rare physician who has that insight uh, about those patients, and uh, they are very fortunate to have someone who is evaluating them uh, along those lines. Because in in my experience, that is the most productive line of questioning you can do with a, a patient with multiple multiple chemical sensitivity, and in you know more generally with the brain generated symptoms, is to look for these early experiences, and it doesn't have to be um, the most overt, obvious uh, physical sexual abuse or uh, rampant. Uh, substance abuse by the parents or having a, a rageaholic for a parent, for example, it can be in cases a lot more subtle. Um, any treatment of the child that knocks their self-esteem down on a long-term basis can have these long-term outcomes. If the kid doesn't get adequate support, um, adequate love, um, adequate sense of that they are a valuable person. Uh, anything that makes them feel second rate or worthless, for example, can have these same long-term impacts, um, even though it might not have been so obviously bad uh, as um, my first patient with the sexual abuse. But it's, it's wonderful that you're taking that line of inquiry with your patients. And, you know, I, I never learned about this in my medical training. Well, why don't health professionals know more about this? Why aren't they being made aware of this potential since, uh, you know, as you estimate, one in six adults suffers from chronic pain or illness that's, quote, medically unexplained and may be attributable to uh, PPD? Yeah, I think there are two reasons for that. Uh, one is that it's a completely different way of thinking. You know, we're taught about um, organs and structures and physiology, and that's um, almost in the, the whole of our education uh, as physicians. Uh, the psychology of this, uh, looking for stresses and their impact on people, it's a, a different way of thinking. It's, it's definitely... Uh, uh, a very important parallel railroad track, but uh, it takes um, a leap of faith to understand just how important it can be in uh, diagnosing and treating people successfully. I think the second reason that 
uh, it hasn't caught on yet, although it's it's starting to. I mean, I'm teaching in my medical school here in Portland. Uh, my first book, They Can't Find Anything Wrong, is being used in medical schools in Europe. Uh, so we're we're starting to get some traction and moving toward a tipping point with this. Um, but I think a lot of um, medical clinicians feel like this population of patients uh, really can't be successfully treated. And uh, the opposite is true, is the best thing that I can say, is that um, we can uh, alleviate symptoms in this population as successfully uh, as we do anybody else. Uh, that's a very, very encouraging perspective. And we're going to examine that perspective in part two. As our listeners know, we divide our podcast into two parts. And in part two, we're going to talk about uh, potential solutions to uh, PPD, which is psychophysiologic disorder. Uh, you can find out more at the website and, uh, let's see, um, endchronicpain.org. Uh, and also, there's some great resources there. And by the way, you have an upcoming uh, seminar that uh, uh, it's timely because uh, we may post this podcast uh, in time for some of our listeners to participate in that uh, uh, free public event on February 1st, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Uh, we have um, an open event um, at um, 2 p.m. Um, Pacific time, uh, 5 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. Um, and you can uh, link up to that uh, uh, on the same website and chronicpain.org. Uh, we also have, I should point out on that website, a very simple 12-item self-assessment quiz for people that want to investigate themselves to see if this uh, might apply to them. The more questions on that quiz to which you answer yes, the more likely it is that all of these concepts uh, apply to your situation. Okay, great stuff. Uh, Dr. David Clark, uh, stay with us because uh, when we return, we've got lots more to discuss. Uh, Dr. Clark, president of the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association. You can find them at nchronicpain.org. The subject is Innovative Ways for Addressing Chronic Pain. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. <laughs> 